This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me. I'm speaking with Nick Hornby who I'm delighted to speak with. Hi, Nick. Hi. I said this off air too, I'll just say it again. I meet lots of people that I love talking to and I meet very few of my absolute heroes and, and you're one of those, so oh, very nice to meet you in you. person. Um, you've written many great books. High Fidelity is the one that sort of like shot through me like a bolt of electricity, made many great movies, and we're here to talk about a project. Do we call it a, a movie? Do we call it a TV show? It's a TV show, I State think. State of the Union. Yeah. 10 10-minute episodes. Um, that mostly consists of two people talking to each other before they go into a marriage counseling session. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's the best you can possibly do with the pitch. <laughs> I've, I've, yeah, I've, I could probably pitch it better, right? How did you pitch it? Well, I I didn't. I just started writing. Um, I didn't know what I was writing. And uh, and I thought, oh, okay, that maybe, maybe these are good. I don't know. And I sent them to a, a producer friend who said, oh, write some more. And, and we went from there. One of the great joys of this series was um, because the scripts are 10 pages long and sometimes you can hear back from people within an hour because they read the first page and they go, what, there's only another nine? And, and they read them all. And, and that happened with the cast and director and the producers. Like, whereas I, I, got t- I, got, I got 10 pages in, but I'm looking for the rest? Yeah, 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 and 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 usually, you know, if I get sent stuff, I'd maybe read a couple of pages. And think, okay, well, I'll read the rest later. But when you think, oh, I can do it now, I'll read it now, and and then call him now, and that, and that was kind of what happened all the way through, which was great. So you already told me the dumbest, most repetitive question you've gotten on this tour is how did this come about? <laughs> but but here we are, because that's the kind yeah. of person I am. Was this always going to be short, sort of serialized? stories or or was this originally a, a novel or a no, play or a movie and you've cut it up it well there are all kinds of bits of ideas that i have where they're tucked away somewhere and and i think um i read woody allen saying it's when two ideas collide that things get interesting and and i i'm, I'm pretty sure that i'd had the idea of the couple meeting before therapy and i thought oh, i wonder what you can do with that and then I, I saw a couple of short form things, um, notably High Maintenance, the Vimeo. Yeah, that's great. Which eventually went to HBO. And, yeah. Yeah. But when it was like those nine, 10, 11 minute things, I thought, whoa, I didn't know you could do that. Yeah. That looks really fun. Just short, short stories. Yeah, yeah. And then there was just a period in life which, if I'm only doing movie work, happens quite a lot, which is that I, I was waiting for a lot of people on a lot of different projects. I was waiting for a director on one and financing on another and an actress on a third. 
And it's like a month where I thought, I don't know what I'm going to do with myself. It's not enough time to write a book. So I thought, maybe I'll try. You didn't want to tweet? I didn't want to tweet. Uh, maybe I'll try like a, a high maintenance thing. And, and then I remembered the couple and I thought, okay, that's it. And so it was only ever going to be 10 minutes. Yeah. And in and, and the high maintenance stuff, those are standalone stories. They're each yeah. a short story. It stands alone. There's a recurring character, but almost barely tangentially involved. But this is a this is one story. You have to watch it from beginning it's to end to understand arc. it. It's a story Yeah, yeah. Um, and so when you present it to your producing people, is the reaction, this is great, but there's no format for this. No, we don't do this anywhere. Yes, but they liked it enough to say, well, can we have a go and see where we get? with it and um and i think it was a passing conversation with sundance amc where they said well we got this thing we don't know what it is and i shouldn't think you'd be interested and they said straight away oh no absolutely we like the sound of that we want to do it and they did it and it was it was pretty straightforward i was googling and at some point there was this thing there's a headline that says this was a bbc pro production or did, was the bbc touching it at some point or is that just no uh the bbc bad industry it, reporting no. okay yeah. And bought it, yeah. but Sundance paid for it and said, yeah. go ahead and yeah. do it. Yeah. And do they talk to you at all at some point and say, I know we talked about 10, 10 minute episodes, but we've gone back and we don't really know what to do with this or are they all in once they've, once they've they never to mentioned it, it again. Um, they, all, all we ever talked about was how do we show it and what's the best way of showing it, but they never said rethink it. So what's, what's the, what's the challenge of writing in that sort of short compressed form? Well, first of all, it sort of got flipped on its head because the short compressed form turned out to be a liberation in that you never get to write 10 page dialogue scenes in a movie or a TV show. You don't get to have 10 minutes of conversation. No. Yeah. Um, and I love writing dialogue. So when I started, I thought, oh, this is great. This is like, you know, you think you're writing miniatures, but you're being given, as it were, the length of Ulysses <laughs> in a conversation. So um, so it didn't feel like that. Uh, but then the challenge is if you're, if you have a facility with dialogue, which I think I do, I mean, it, it, probably with the negative and positive um, connotations of that word, that you can keep going forever, and then, you, you know, I get to the end of my 10 pages and I think I've, I've got nowhere. Um, yeah, they, this couple hasn't moved. They got stuck on the same loop in a conversation. I got to go back and compress it. Because if you look at them, each episode kind of has a beginning, a middle and an end. Right. Something they start talking about leads them somewhere, which might take them to a bad place and they end up slightly further back than they were the week before. So... Each episode is structured, and I think, uh, obviously, you've got a story arc over the 10 episodes. So it was really making sure that uh, the 10 minutes contained some kind of development and you didn't just get endlessly self-indulgent with the conversation. And when you're writing this, so you have the, the challenge slash liberation of having these 10 pages of dialogue, mm -hmm. and that's great. Are you thinking about how your audience is going to watch this and whether they're going to watch it? in 10 straight sittings or they're going to watch it once a week and come back to it and you need to remind them of what they're watching? I never thought of that stuff. I thought, I'm just going to write. I mean, because it really was like a hobby at this point. Yeah. It was like, I've got Can a I do it? Can I do this? Can I do stunt? this? And so I didn't think of any of that stuff at first. I just thought, um, I, I'm going to do it and then maybe I won't even show it to anyone. I don't know. But uh, then I showed it to someone and it 
it kind of all got out of hand, and here we are. And you guys have now shown it a couple times as a as movie, a, yeah. right? At Sundance, at and Sundance I get it at, at Tribeca, Tribeca just, yeah. just this weekend. And yeah. do you have a sense of how it plays if you watch it concurrent, not concurrently, if you watch it in one run versus doing it episodically? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, the thing that we were trepidatious about at Sundance, I, I, I think we have confidence in the show and, and, and the performances and Stephen, but we didn't know what it would be like to show it as a 100-minute yeah. thing. And the weird thing about Sundance was it really played as a kind of quirky 10-chapter movie because um, we, we cut the credits out and all that sort of thing, so it just fades to black in between each episode with a piano sting. So it sort of felt like a, an early Woody Allen or, yeah, or something like that. Yeah, with the black. Yeah. So that was good. I, I haven't watched it episodically in the sense that I haven't made up my mind that I will watch five days in a row, two episodes a day or anything like that. Um, I, I, I think it, it should work. I think probably the best way would be to watch two or three at a sitting. Yeah, so we should explain. So you're probably listening to this in the middle of the run. You can, you guys are doing on on linear TV on the Sundance Channel. You're putting up an episode at ten o'clock every yeah. night, and so you can see that over ten days. And then uh, in the afternoon, you're putting out two episodes. Yeah, that's the commuting. Online. That's the commuting slot. Right. The conceit is you're going to watch that on the yeah. train home. Yeah. Um, depending on what kind of train you take and what yeah. kind of receptivity you yeah. have. Um, <laughs> or bus. And, or bus, um, but don't do it while you're driving. And you're an omnivorous consumer of media and, and you create for a bunch of different forms. Have you thought about how you think people are going to consume this? I mean, if if you guys are saying, look, this is for commuting, by definition, you're expecting someone to watch it on their phone or their iPad. Yeah. Um, and I think that it's something, obviously, that works visually in that form. Because it's two people talking. Uh, it's two people talking, and and uh, their faces are so fantastic. They're such great faces to watch, and they're, they're such good actors. So um, it's it's not like you're going to lose a sense of scale or anything like that because it wasn't made with that that in mind. Even though it's very nice. Yeah, I had shot. Steven Soderbergh on, and he had he had co-produced this western for Netflix, which his name I can no longer remember, but it was yeah. great. It's seven yeah. episodes, and they're just using their full budget and horses and. I told him I'd watched a bunch of it on the plane, and he just downcast. <laughs> Even though he shoots movies on iPhones, and again, he understands yeah, yeah. how he just you yeah. can see he just didn't want to hear that. Yeah. But your expectation is I'm going to watch it with earbuds on. That is definitely one of the ways in which people would do it. I'd quite like couples to watch together, obviously. In that uncomfortable... Yeah. Recognizing... Yeah, I don't know. Okay. Well... Have you gotten feedback from couples who've watched it and said, yeah, it's, Not it's yet. too piercing? Not yet. We did have a, uh, in fact, Rosamond uh, is friends with a marital therapist. It's Rosamond Pike. Yeah. One of your stars. Uh, who came, uh, the, the therapist came along um, to, a, to a screening in, in London. And she was really interesting. Uh, she said that she'd never thought about that time and uh, the 10 minutes before and, and that, of course, a couple would be in turmoil and nervous and yeah. everything coming in and that there would be conversations between them that would be complicated or messed up. And so it, it was nice. But she also told me something I'd never heard of or thought of before, that quite often or, or more than once she has brought the third party into the room. So if there's an affair going on... Um, oh, I'm making a wincing face. Yeah. That sounds very un-British, though. Yeah. 
Yeah, you yeah. Can, you can tell this is a British couple, by the way, because they meet at a pub yeah. beforehand and yeah. they consume alcohol beforehand. Yeah. And none yeah. of those things would happen here. Or if they did, you'd immediately start talking about that in therapy. Why did you feel it was necessary <laughs> to have two pints or wine? Uh, after being, after staying clearly away from therapy forever, I've gotten recently exposed to a lot of it. And my understanding of it is you go into a kind of dingy room uh, that has one of these white noise machines and all therapists' offices have sort of the same sort of dinginess, and they all have that same white noise machine. There's no pub involved. Really? Yeah. That's America. Yeah. Or maybe at least it's New York City. I yeah. would love it if I could bring a flask, but I think, honestly, they would just immediately report well, that, uh, I mean, most of... I, I've been to various forms of therapy, but it, it, there's always... It's always like in someone's house. And, um, uh, and I, you know, I, I did... It was essential to the idea that they could see the, the office through the window of the pub. That was, that was yeah. pretty much the only stricture on 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 the locations people um but yeah i think the uh pubs are not regarded as dens of iniquity really and that people do drop in and have have alcohol and and no one thinks anything of it it's very different yeah it's very different was um because this is 10 minutes um you can't run a commercial break here was there a discussion of hey maybe they could hoist a pint of name your beer here. Maybe there could be an ad, maybe there could be a billboard that's visible and we could help defray the cost there. Uh, the only conversation I remember about that was, came from a cast member. Uh, you have to, you got a 50-50 guest yeah. there who said her agent had suggested <laughs> <laughs> that we should go to all these brewers and, um, and, and, uh, snack companies. <laughs> and he politely nodded and said, great idea. Yeah, yeah. Well, she said we can make billions, and uh, and I said okay, off you go. But then I never heard the, so, the end of that. Do you do you think this is sort of a one off for you? Do you do you think you'll come back to this format, or is this only works for this story? And you had that idea, and you've kind of scratched that itch. That was how I began, and then um, AMC. Well, I don't know if it was even AMC, but anyway we started to talk about a second season um uh which would not involve this couple um and and that felt liberating as well it's like there's no way i could go back to tom and louise mm -hmm. um but if you think of how many different varieties of a marriage or a relationship there are um and how many different problems you can come up with uh then yeah now we're thinking seriously about a second season really? with 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 two different people and i think because this one has kind of worked out and and the, and the at least the talent involved is at the very very top level that you've got a calling card to go to people you really want to work with and it's not it's just say it's 3 weeks of your life and if we sort the money right, then it's actually not un unremunerative if we keep some rights and sell them. Keep on. the rights, and, and you're going to only be working those three weeks, so you can go on to do whatever yeah, else. And, yeah. and if you want to drink during the filming, yes, you exactly. can do that. Yeah, well, I mean, Ros and Chris, Rosman and Chris had uh, a rather nice thing where once the day's shooting finished, they got a bottle of wine from the pub and sat down at that table and then went through the next day script and I think they quite enjoy See and everyone that. has this reputation that, that actors are coddled you know and oh I guess it's kind of true they get to drink it's good that what? that they're coddled and, and oh, well we, we couldn't let them drink during the day I but understand. they had a drink in the evening 
but um, uh, they worked hard. Uh, I think when you send actors and actresses scripts, of course, they, they whip through and think, oh, I've got a nice bit there and I've got a nice bit there. And their first reaction, both of them, is, whoa, I've got half of every single page. That's fantastic. But, you know, in 100 minutes, Rosamond would, or Chris would never have done a part that big in their lives because there's nothing else apart from them. They have literally 50% of the right. script. It's literally just them talking. Literally just them talking. So even the, like a couple of the movies I've made which were reasonably talky and had actresses in them, like An Education or Brooklyn, if you do an analysis on um, Final Draft, which you can do of what percentage they get, it would be like about 31% of a script mm -hmm. or 28%. And on this, it's like 49. <laughs> um, and that's over a lot of minutes. Have so. you? I, I know people have compa compared this to a stage play, and then I've heard you say, no, it's not a stage mm. play. It does just because it is two people talking mm. and there aren't explosions and mm. almost very little else happens besides them talking. How is that not a stage play or what's different about it than a stage play? Well, for me, um, the way Stephen and Mike, the DOP, shot those actors and, and what they're given to do in terms of reaction shots and, um, and their sort of slow cogitation. I think the idea of being like 20 rows away from those faces and, and it reduces it more to a radio play experience, mm -hmm. I think, um, because it's all in the, in the face. Right, and it has to get more shouty and more yeah, projecty yeah, and here yeah, you can have more exactly. close to a real conversation. Yeah, and it doesn't feel like that would be real in the same way that the, the 10 minutes feel real to me now. I want to talk about movies and books and yeah. television shows. We're going to take a quick break and hear from a sponsor. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. I'm still here with Nick Hornby, who's agreed to keep talking to me. She's delightful. As I mentioned, books, movies, uh, you're doing, uh, you do screenplays for things that are not your own books, mm. television shows. Mm. This is your, is this your first TV show? I uh, adapted a, a book for the BBC. What was uh, that? Uh, Love Nina, it was called. Um, a rather marvellous diary that somebody wrote. So the conventional wisdom now is that people who want to tell stories, like the stories you want to tell, that are mm. thoughtful and kind of smallish stories, and maybe there is no explosion and probably not of a lot of existing Marvel IP, that that no longer happens in movies and that all people like you have moved to television. So how much time do you think about whether or not you want to be a TV writer or a Netflix writer or Hulu writer or Apple TV Plus writer? I don't know if I spend much time thinking about what kind of writer I want to be because either I have an idea for something or I don't. And, and um, if I have a TV idea, I'll write it as TV and see what happens to it. But I think you're right. I think that the hardest movies to get made now are the ones that you might need $15 million for as opposed to $150 million for, uh, which would be, you know, uh, uh, the, the, the sort of Brooklyn and education model. They are just so hard to Those get are movies made. you wrote. You didn't write the book, but you wrote the screenplay. Yeah, very well done. Yeah, yeah. 
uh, but they are so hard to get financed and um, they, they kind of kill you and it, and it takes so many years that a lot of the fun has gone by the time you get to the point of But you're still trying to do them, them. or... You yeah, yeah, I've got a couple yeah. that, um, that I, I, I want to try and do. Um, I've, I've got a couple of adaptations that I've done over the last couple of years that are waiting for the usual actor or money or director or something. And how do you distinguish between a movie is this and a television show is that other than the actual who's financing for it and where it's being distributed? Is there a difference in the in the storytelling now? There is a difference. I I think it just have to it starts further back in your head. So when you start thinking maybe that you would like to write a television series, then even before you've had the germ of the idea, then that's the shape that you're thinking about. That it's going to be episodic. That episodic, maybe it will go to a second season or a third season. Um, and and so it's not like you, you get any kind of category error, that it, it's built into your head right from the start. Because again, one of the tropes that you'll hear is the Game of Thrones folks will say, this is a 76-hour movie. I don't even know if they say <laughs> that anymore. And of course, that there's no such thing. But yeah. say like... It's reasonable to say that this we the form can change, that people can now watch something over ten or twelve or maybe even twenty hours, but it is one long story, and we can we, there's no reason that just because we were forced to distribute things in specific ways, we can't change them now. Music used to be a certain length because the the vinyl could only carry so much music. This is right? what I keep thinking about that um that things that we thought were givens, when you examine them, it turned out just to be technological yeah. <laughs> limitations. So, you know, it's really, a book is really that shape because it's better for everybody that it's not like this. You can't hold it in your hand if it's that much bigger. Yeah, and, and if it's like this, then no one will pay for it. Yeah. So, you, you know, most books are conveniently three or 400 pages long. And as you say, it was vinyl, which was 40 minutes, and then it was CDs, which was 70 minutes. And, and now, everything's become unmoored from its physical being. And if, if, if you'd told me 20 years ago that you'd be able to email someone a song, I'd have thought that you'd be able to email them a sandwich. Yeah. You know, that, that a, a song was a piece of plastic or a piece of silver or something. And you think, how can you do that? Uh, but it, it's just now everything's floated free. And, and yes, if you want to make something work in your shape, then you can do that. And that's quite exciting. Does that appeal to you? Do yeah, you want, yeah. yeah. Do you like the idea of experimenting for experimenting sake or just, look, this is how the work is going to get done and yeah, I'll the, go this direction? It's it's an obvious idea for this shape and you think, well, now I can do this shape. I don't have to just shove it to one side or, to, or try and force it into a shape it wasn't intended to be in. And this is a perfect example of that. I didn't know when I started it that it would ever get made or that it would ever attract any attention. And um, and people just seem to accommodate, absorb new form quite quickly now. You did a version of this. Uh, uh, I'm gonna. I loved it, and I'm gonna embarrass myself because I might get the name. Was it Songbook? Yeah. Yeah. So it was. It was twelve essays about, or however many number of essays about this many songs. It came with a CD. Yeah. Because it was still back when that was yes, a theoretical yes, yeah. way to consume music. Um, McSweeney's published it. Yeah, that it was way. great. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's where I learned about. Uh, was it Loudon Wainwright or Rufus Wainwright? It was Rufus. Yeah. yeah. I love that yeah, song. Yeah. Um, so you should go dig that up. I don't know if it's in print or if you can, telling the audience they should go dig that up. You know where it is. Um, <laughs> 
But so, so you've always liked that sort of experimental thing, and it seems like you are commercially successful enough that you have the capacity to try different things. Yeah, uh, um, but I think I've been emboldened, really, by things becoming commercially successful that seemed to me to be commercially unpromising when I first started doing them. What's an example? Well, Fever Pitch. Yeah. Um, Fever Pitch is the a book. memoir written in the form of football match reports. And so at the time I was writing it, I thought, I don't know. I mean, I, a publisher paid for it in the end. And I thought, okay, um, maybe some Arsenal fans would will read it. But it kind of transcended the form that it was in. And people didn't seem to notice that it was a memoir in, in the form of match reports. And it, But it's certainly kind of quirky. Uh, or it felt quirky when I started it. Um, but because it worked and it worked commercially, then you think, okay, um, it doesn't seem to matter as long as there is an accessibility in the actual stuff itself. It doesn't matter what the form is. I mean, if you started writing it all backwards or whatever, uh, then, yeah, good luck to you. Um, but that isn't what I do. I have a similar, I always ask successful people like yourself, if you were starting out today, what would your career path look like? Same level of talent, same level of ambition. Would you have more options, fewer options? Would you be funneled a different way? I think that um, the interesting thing about books is they're still uh, the quickest and easiest way to find like-minded souls, actually. Uh, so a, a good publishing house full of smart editors, um, they're looking for stuff the same way as everybody else. But it's, it's a much quicker way to um, get to start off because publishers will take a risk on a first-time author in the hope of investing in a career. And nobody takes a risk on a first-time author in movies. They, or rather, they don't think... Yeah, we like this one, but the fourth screenplay, that's really going to mm -hmm. be something uh, because the movies cost $50 million to make. So you either don't get them made or you get them made. There's no sense of we're going to print 2,000 copies, hope it does well. If it doesn't, well, the second book might. And this assumes there are still people reading full-length books that, and... Which, it's hard to tell now because my subway commutes changed, right? Because it used to be I saw people holding New York yeah, Times and, yeah, yeah. and hard copy books. Or, yeah, you can't see anyone can't doing that stuff. Yeah, and it's hard to imagine they are, frankly. It seems like they're all playing some version of, not Angry Birds, whatever you'd be playing instead. Yes, yeah. Um, but books do sell and attention is drawn to books. And, you know, we can all think of... You know, someone like my friend Zadie Smith who has come to prominence entirely in a sort of post-email yeah. digital age and she's done fine and she's not dumbed down she's super smart um it's proper literary fiction and uh, and i think her career has worked in a way that someone's career might have worked 50 years ago and then you've got a calling card and then you've got a chance if you want to go to netflix to go that way but i wouldn't start with the netflix thing yeah i guess the the thing the other thing i notice is I've been thinking a little bit about the early 90s and how everyone read a Michael Crichton book and everyone read uh, uh, who wrote the legal thrillers. John Grisham. John Grisham book. Yeah. And it was just assumed that lots of people read it. It didn't mean you were erudite. It was just a thing you did. And yeah. No one would ask you if you'd read the newest John Grisham book today. No, I think that's right. Although, I mean, Harry Potter was such right. an extraordinary phenomenon. And um, 
there is no doubt that she got people reading and I don't know what they've gone on to read. I don't think it stopped with Harry Potter, all those billions of books. Uh, my I kids mean, reading uh, uh, Percy Jackson. Yeah, yeah. So there you go. So yeah. a bunch of that. But when I mean when they're 25, like the first people to read Harry Potter are now 30-odd. Yeah, I think there's a digital version of this with things like Wattpad and people are kind of self-publishing and, and, yeah. and finding their own yeah, niches. Yeah. And I find it very impenetrable and need yeah. someone to explain it to yeah. me. But meanwhile, bookshops seem to be doing reasonably okay. You would know better than I do. You're visiting them still, right? Yeah. Or speaking at them. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I'll take uh, your word for you it. You have to work a bit harder for it, but it seems, and, and my publishers tell me, it's, it's a pretty healthy uh, commercial climate at the moment. And they keep paying you money to do it, so yeah. good. Not as much as before, but yeah. Um, you've, you've got a new book coming out? Or you're working on a new book? I, I turned it in before I came here, uh, so it should be this year. Yeah. During my Googling, I saw the word Brexit connected to your book. <laughs> Well, the trouble is, if you put Brexit in anything, people say it's about Brexit. Mm -hmm. Somebody asked me if it's true that this whole series was about Brexit, um, because it does have the word Brexit in it. Oh, the State of the Union. State of yeah. the Union, because there is an argument about Brexit. Um, but it, my novel is a, a, a relationship between two people, a, lo a love story, which is set during the year of the referendum, so to that extent. It's Brexit. Do you have any compulsion that during the Trump era, during the Brexit area, that that things are so momentous, so extreme that you should be creating art that talks about that or reflects it or responds to it? Or do you think, no, I'll do what I'm going to do? Well, I think um, novels and books maybe are not the best way to respond because the process is slow. I can remember writers being castigated for not writing about the giants of Wall Street and, and, and you know, the, the, this was an astonishing thing that these people were the emperors of the universe. And I was just thinking that by the time, if you'd read that piece and then written your novel and then got it published, you'd have just been in time for the first crash when they right. were all complete pillocks and no one would have read your book anyway. So I think you have to be careful of that. I think it's interesting, you know, like with the Michael Wolf book, The Fire and... Bonfire of the Vanities, yeah. No the, no, the Fire and the Fury. Oh, right, 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 yeah, yeah. Uh, the that, that Michael Wolf. Wolf. That Michael Wolf. Not Tom Wolf, sorry. Um, I bought that book the day it was published in England, and I, I was in the middle of something else and thought, well, I'll, I'll read that one next. But by the time I was ready to read that book, so much had happened with Trump that it felt like it was actually missing the point to read this one as opposed to one that might yeah. come... At some point, I think the that's the peril of any of those topical books, whether it's O.J. Simpson, Jur, Tell Alls, any of that. Even if you turn it around, almost I talked to someone who's doing a college admissions scandal book, and she's working very, 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 very quickly to do it. But it'll <laughs> still be a year. Yeah, yeah. I think the thing with Trump is that it changes every day. I right. mean, that, that college admissions scandal story is more or less over, um, and it might not be topical when the book's out, but it's not like there'll be. 15 more college admission scandals, each of which blows the previous one out of the water, which is what's happened with Trump, basically. Um, I don't have a good segue for this, but I want to ask you about fandom. Um, mm. High Fidelity is the book that really zinged me. Uh, but your other, some, several other books talk about fandom, either the characters or obsessive fans. Um, and I'm wondering how you think 
the idea of fandom has changed over time. So High Fidelity is it's, it's a guy who loves music and loves collecting vinyl and works at a record shop. And obviously that's archaic now, but I often think about the fact that leaving aside the record shop part of it, that, that for a certain kind of person, probably a male kind of person, that fandom and the work involved in fandom and trying to find the stuff and find information about the stuff was kind of part of the act, like it was core to the act. Yeah. Um, and it strikes me that's probably different right now, but I, I don't actually know. I think it is different. I think it's very easy to track things down incredibly quickly. Right, it gets served right up to you. Yeah, it's served right up to you. Um, but does it diminish your passion for it or how you think about yourself by identifying with it? You know what? I, I really love music. And when I think how much of my time was spent trying to get three minutes of music or maybe 40 minutes of music, like flicking, 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 flicking. Physically go to the place. Physically go to the place. They may not, or may not have it. And they might not have it. And I am loving being able to find it like straight away. Uh, it, it gives me more music, more bang for my back, more music in my day. Um, and so that's objectively good, right? It's objectively good. And it's objectively and good for the music. Well, you can argue Well, you can argue about the musicians and, and their compensation, yeah, but, but at least fans, the music gets out. Yeah, and I just think it's incredibly exciting that we are in an age where every piece of recorded music ever made is available to you in a box on your desk right. or in your pocket. It's in your pocket. It's so, incredible. But what does that do then to the people who are identifying themselves because of just not only their, they like the thing, but they had to do the work to get the thing and they knew more about the thing than you did. Again, these are your record star characters in High Fidelity, but well, there are other parts, other, other stories you tell as well. Yeah, I, I think those guys have been exposed, actually. As? Um, well, it's... If you're still doing it, 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 it's kind of a sad sack thing to do because it, it just shows you have nothing to do with your day. Whereas if you actually just love the stuff, then the opportunity it gives you to find out more about that stuff and to listen to more of it. Do you think there's some impulse though of affiliation or oh, yeah. trying to like and, display? And you that, you that... do have to separate it off. And it's interesting, I've been, um, I've had a real jazz thing the last four or five years. I just wanted to listen to something that wasn't, you know, four four time and verse chorus verse. I still do that thing as well, but the, the, the jazz thing's been interesting. But that world, um, first of all, you can still do that thing because so much of it hasn't been digitized. And it's so niche, too, right? It's like, I mean, it's so such niche. a niche. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Um, Just by saying you like jazz, you're automatically sort I of guess. at the corner of the bar. But I, I, I subscribe to a rather brilliant and baffling um, blog called Jazzwax uh, website. And every day you get an email from this guy and every day he talks about some album or musician that you've never heard of in your life. And most days of the week I can um, then get out my phone and look and bizarrely they're there on spotify you know sometimes with less than a thousand listeners and you can listen to it and i get as much of a thrill out of having found this dark little pocket of spotify uh, as i would have done if i'd found it in a record because store. you're thinking about the record store characters in particular right who are they love the music but yeah. they also love knowing about the music but and telling about stuff. the music you're yeah. sympathetic to them but ultimately you you think they're stunted people, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think I think that's probably in the in the book. Yeah. Even that um that the music's great and uh 
um, and and the people can be really interesting and funny, but um, but in the end, you've got to find something that's going to fill up your day that isn't that stuff. So so you don't you don't you don't you don't uh, mourn the loss of sort of that hard to find, hard sought knowledge. I got this T-shirt because I went to the show. I know about this song because I followed three <laughs> weird zines. I didn't just click a Spotify button. Uh, I don't it. think that's gone. I don't think Spotify has taken care of that. Um, I think that Spotify works best for fans and for older people. And when I look at my kids, they use Spotify in the way that I used to use the radio. You know, it's like I want this one song and then I want to hear it again. And, um, and so, you know, they're listening to 20 songs on, on Spotify, which is what we did. A lot of repetition. Yeah. Except we did, had no choice. We got the repetition because well, we the radio the repeated it but for then, us. But we had, we had no choice also because we only owned, at the beginning, we owned one forty-five, and then two forty-fives, and then nine albums. So we, we were... Yeah, that's why people of a certain age, you and I can tell us, what, tell what me what their first album... And also um, what your first album yes, was and what yeah, your yeah, tenth yeah. album was. Um, which, and, and of course that's gone, but... Now, with the body of knowledge that we built up about music, and if you're still curious about music, um, that sense of being able to explore anything you want um, without having to risk it financially. Um, well, you, you couldn't afford to risk it financially to the extent that yeah. people are doing now. I'm, I'm really loving that. I think it's incredible. Yeah, I've tried to lecture my kids about how difficult it was to find this sermon, and they don't care, and they're right not to care. They just want to hear whatever song well, they it, want. Well, it was kind of crazy what... I mean, I, I regard Spotify as a human right for my kids. I mean, I, I would pay their subscription service forever because it's part mm -hmm. of their education. But yeah, my 16-year-old, when, when he was talking, he's, he's recently got into vinyl and he's got his own record player and he's buying albums. He said, the thing I don't get that is this, it's like the one song. And I said, yeah, the 45. And he said, why would you buy one song? And... <laughs> And when I thought about it, I thought, why did we buy well, there was one a B -side, song? Yeah. yeah, there was a B-side, which sometimes wasn't It's what you the could best. get. But yeah, one song. It's a funny thing to think of now. And which song is worth that amount of repetition? We killed them all, really, by the repetition. Besides obscure jazz, what are you listening to? Um, I, still, I still look for new rock singer-songwriters, you know, country, bluesy. I love... Um, an indie band called Big Thief who have a new album out this weekend. Okay, um, and we'll go on Spotify when we're done listening. Well, yeah, um, listen to Capacity, uh, their last album, but I think they're fantastic songwriters and they feel fresh, and yeah, I've got a bit of a crush on them. All right, we're going to leave it there. Listen to Big Thief, watch State of the Union. Yeah. Thanks, Nick Hornby. That's good. Again, what a great job I have that I get to talk to Nick Hornby, um, and I get to share it with you guys. Thank you for listening. Thanks also to Golda Arthur, who is my senior producer. Joel Robbie is my editor. Golda is rolling her eyes at me. Uh, thanks to our fine sponsors who bring this show to you for free. Thanks for listening. See you soon. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. 
Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. Support for this podcast came from SAS. Data is everything. And now everything is data, which means more to process, more to analyze. And now more than ever, speed to answers matters. So how do you produce those answers as fast as the world produces data? With SAS VIA, the quickest way from a billion points of data to a point of view. It's a more productive data and AI platform that helps you get more done. Learn more today at sas.com slash VIYA.